I'm going to go ahead and share my testimony, and then tomorrow I'll be teaching uh, out of Luke 14. So uh, a couple of things before I start. First of all, thank you to Steve, and thank you here at Grace for having me out. Uh, thanks, Justin, as well, for letting me join you. It's really hard to follow that up. I mean, your stuff is good, man. It's good. I was going to make a joke about all the sick people lining up on my right and my left, but I don't know if people are used to me being around in the Bible church world yet. And Justin and I thought it'd be funny if I wore white, and then we decided not to do that either. So uh, we'll just start things off uh, the way we ought to, and uh, so wonderful. Well, I'm going to go to the Lord again in prayer and ask you to join me, and I'm just going to ask that uh, what I say would be edifying and pleasing to him. Anytime you tell your testimony and it's the way that mine is, I want to be careful that there isn't uh, too many rabbit trails of gossip and that I don't come across uh, abrasive or... Uh, full of idle chatter and things that are not becoming of pastors and those who share. So let's go to the Lord and ask that this be an edifying and pleasing time. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for your unchanging word. And thank you for your son Jesus, our mighty and coming king. Thank you for his love and his sacrifice and his atoning work that has set us free from our sin. I thank you that you have given us men who are faithful with your word and for what Justin just brought and how it opens our eyes and reminds us of the importance of contending for the faith. Cause us to be faithful in all things to the end. Thank you for men like Pastor Steve who labor faithfully each week in the pulpit and with their people as a shepherd on your behalf. Thank you for saving me. I pray that this would be edifying and pleasing to your saints and that they would encourage them to never give up to be faithful in bearing witness, to be faithful evangelists, to be godly men and women who make disciples and who never give up, knowing that you are sovereign in salvation and you will elect your sheep for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, John 10 is a verse that I held near and dear for many years. John 10, 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have that life more abundantly. Uh, Growing up, we lived this verse to the max. We were a wealthy, healthy family who taught prosperity gospel. My uncle is Benny Hinn, as some of you know. And we lived John 10.10, but it had gone wrong. And we'll get to that towards the end, but ultimately, uh, growing up as a hen was full of money, uh, full of Bible verses twisted and used to gain money, and of course, using and abusing many of God's people, but also many people who uh, were happy and pleased to raise up teachers who would teach things that tickled their ears and told them what they wanted to hear. Uh, It was almost 15 years ago that I was on a trip, and I was working for my Uncle Benny, And I remember the name of the resort. It was called the Grand Resort Lagonisi in Greece. We were just outside of Athens. And I stood on the rocks. I had my own private suite, my own private pool. I had over 2,000 square feet of space to myself uh, with an infinity pool that draped over the edge of a body of water. I wasn't quite sure about what it was, but I didn't care. I was living the dream. Uh, We had security with us, and we were on a layover as we went to do gospel ministry uh, overseas. And I remember standing there as a young man, and I thought, I have arrived. Those were my exact thoughts. 
I thought that I was next. It had been prophesied over me many times that I was going to receive my uncle's mantle and receive a double portion of his anointing, some of the anointing that Justin described in the first session, and that I would be a man of God who would take the ministry to the next level. That was often prophesied. And as I stood there, I thought I had it all figured out. God was my magic genie. If I had rubbed him right, done the right things, spoke the right things, had faith the right way, given the right amount, and done all the right things, that I would get everything I ever wanted. And so there I stood, and I was convinced that we were on the front lines of gospel ministry. Uh, The body of water out off of my hotel suite was the Aegean Sea. And Paul covered parts of the Aegean on each one of his three missionary journeys. And there was just a, a one glaring problem, and that is we were not teaching the same gospel as Paul. And that is a story I tell often because it brings me back to the moment uh, when I had it all figured out. And God would show me very soon that I knew very little about the true gospel. Uh, growing up as a hen for me, involved living up in Vancouver, British Columbia. My father was a pastor of a church there called Vancouver Christian Center. I was born in Orlando, Florida, into Orlando Christian Center, my Uncle Benny's church. And my father took the model that was happening in Orlando and just duplicated it up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, Growing up, we had a big start. About 1,500 people by the time the church started. My dad, uh, in the inaugural year of the Signs and Wonders School of Ministry, began to spread throughout the city that he could teach and impart and give the gift of miracles and healing. People flocked from all over. We sent people to the Toronto Blessing Revival in Toronto at the Toronto Airport Church with Pastor John Arnott. Pastor John Arnott, sorry. And we brought back the anointing from all of those revivals and services. And so it wasn't long before holy water was on the stage, the same place that you might have the drums or your keyboards, we would have bottled water. And if there were sick people, they would come up and get it. Uh, We would have bouts of holy laughter that would last the entire night. I remember being a young man and seeing a, a woman in the lobby laugh hysterically for hours on end after a service and wondering, somewhat confused at why she wouldn't stop. These were the sorts of things that became the norm for us. Of course, there was the fundraising. Of course, there was the money thing. Of course, there was the anointing and the healing thing. But more than anything, it was just a a number of experiences that seemed to be outside of the Scriptures. But any time you wondered or even somebody questioned, it was don't put God in a box. Don't try to contain the Holy Spirit. You can't contain God. And so anything can happen on any given night. And we... Let our experience inform our truth. The Bible was simply a footnote that we would add in in order to get our point across. And we would twist whatever we wanted to make it whatever we wanted so we could make as much as we wanted. Soon we lived in a home that was immaculate, a 10,000 square foot mansion. Uh, My father drove a Benz. My mother drove a Benz. I drove to high school in a Benz. And uh, growing up, People caught notice of that, and soon the news media was at our home, and I remember asking my father questions about it, and the way that we justified it in our minds and to our people and to our family members was simple. Paul was persecuted. Jesus was mocked. He was shamed. Many of the apostles died for their faith. Persecution is normal. When you are God's special and chosen leaders and you are wealthy and you are healthy and you are living the divine mandate of God to have it all and do it all, well, no wonder people are going to persecute you. 
People are going to come against you. They're going to speak evil against you. So you're simply being persecuted for your immaculate faith. Eventually, we would add a home in Southern California in Dana Point down south, a beautiful $2 million beachfront property. And uh, you could imagine there were a couple more Benzes added to the fleet as well. And I got my very own H2 Hummer, uh, complete with TVs in the back. And a nice $1,000 payment every month that had to be paid, and so money had to be made. Uh, Expenses were high, and discernment was low as we continued to raid the body of Christ in other areas of the world. Uh, How did we do all of this? Twisted theology. How did we do all this? By soliciting donations from the poor and exploiting people in our own greed. And I think of Peter's words in 2 Peter 2, 1 through 2. He literally says that false teachers will exploit people. They'll use their greed. They'll introduce secret, destructive heresies. They'll deny the master who has bought them. And they will simply accumulate for themselves much and give people very little. My teenage years were filled with questions, but often the answer would simply be, well, if God wasn't blessing us and if he wasn't with us, why do we have so much? Why are we so popular? Why do millions flock to Uncle Benny's crusades? Why do thousands come to our church? Why do our seats fill every month for the Sunday night healing service and line up on the right and the left claiming to be healed? Why? If we're not truly doing what God would have us do. And we begin to get more scrutiny from orthodox evangelicalism. And so there became moments at school. I went initially to a school called Richmond Christian School. And I remember a young boy walking up to me and saying, you're on a false teacher. And I looked right back at him. I said, well, you go to a dead church. You're a Baptist. That was the way I dealt with things. You guys were the dead Christians sitting around happy to just sing hymns and hear the word. What's up with that? Where's your power? Where's your signs? Where's your wonders? You don't have the Holy Spirit. How boring. I need my experience. It gold dust coming down from the air vents. Where is my experience? And so that's how I learned to fight back. Uh, People caught on pretty quick in our area. Our church was marked. And honestly, churches were being faithful, Baptist churches and other churches, but you would throw everybody in there. If you're Presbyterian, Lutheran, it didn't matter, Reformed, you were dead. Uh, But churches were doing their job. Romans 16, 17, and 18 talks about marking those who cause divisions, who cause dissensions with their false teaching, that those people are wrong and that they need to be marked and you need to point people out and do exactly what faithful pastors do today. And they were marking us. Eventually I would go to a church that was a four square church or a four square school rather, private school. And I was much more accepted there. Uh, During chapel, we would lift our hands and speak in tongues and kids would fall under the power of God and be slain in the spirit. There are all sorts of antics going on. Um, I had no idea, of course, that eventually I would be saved, but I was expelled from that school. Now I wonder if God was simply, uh, no, that's making excuses for my bad behavior. Uh, I did get expelled, though, from the four square school. Uh, No wonder, though, I was probably allergic to the Amy Semple McPherson in the building, but uh, I had a difficult time there for some reason. I end up at a Christian reform school of all places, Fraser Valley Christian High 
a place where teachers were patient with me and principals were gentle, and I struggled there as well. But I used to think they were awful weird because they didn't have any experiences either. And so I graduated high school, and I was a fairly talented baseball player at the time. And I've gotten older now, and I have children, and I'm a lot slower, and so they run around me pretty fast. But back in the day, I was a bit of an athlete, and I wanted to go play college baseball. And so I knew that to do that and be blessed in it, based on the theology that I need to sow a seed into God's kingdom to reap my harvest. I needed to get my Creflo dollar on. So I told my Uncle Benny that I was going to come work for him, that I was going to sow a seed of sacrifice and come and serve him for an entire year before going to college so that I would have been faithful in rubbing my magic genie Jesus just right and so that he'd open the doors after I had finished my term. And so I began a rite of passage uh, working with Uncle Benny. And boy, uh, did I work with Uncle Benny. I was a catcher. If anybody doesn't know what that means, that's when the guys in the suits stand behind the people falling and being slain in the spirit, and you just catch them. It's not really hard. It's just awkward work because God's children and, well, some others come in all shapes and sizes, and so you better catch them, and you better catch them good. I was my uncle's personal assistant. My job off the platform was to carry his Louis Vuitton briefcase everywhere we went. Uh, We carried $10,000 in petty cash all the time, and I dished out $100 bills as tips everywhere we went. Everybody loves Uncle Benny when he travels. Uh, My job was to check us out of some of our hotels, and so there were moments where I would see the bill. And I'll never forget that in Dubai, we were staying in the Royal Suite at the Burj Al Arab, the hotel that's shaped like a a sail. You may see it sometimes on the Travel Channel. And the Royal Suite... Uh, along with the rest of the hotel, is packed with tons of rushed gold, real gold. In our hotel room, just per night, was $25,000 a night. In addition, we would have other suites as well that would run for a few thousand a night. And so our bill would run upwards of forty k just for a layover. On our way, at that moment, to Mumbai, India, to hold a crusade where we would stay at the Mandarin Oriental in another beautiful presidential suite while doing ministry to millions, literally millions of people showed up to that crusade in both 2004 and the years after to get a healing from the man in the white suit. And many, of course, were disappointed. Uh, Layovers were in places like Greece at the Grand Resort in Lagunisi, Maui, we'd rent celebrity homes in Kona, go to London and shop at Harrods, go to Little Italy Italy and Italy, and stay on Lake Como, trips in the Swiss Alps, trips to the Vatican, Australia, Israel, Paris, Monte Carlo to the Hotel de Paris. Uh, Traveling in the U.S. domestically was kind of like getting socks for Christmas. It was like, really? We're just going to Indiana? And you just couldn't wait to get overseas. Uh, We shopped at Versace. Now, my wife and I shop at Target. A little different. But that was the lifestyle that we lived. All of it on donations. All of it on some twisted version of the Bible. And ultimately, I really just thought I was next. I'll never forget one night we were at a crusade and Oral Roberts, while he was still alive, was there. And my father said to me, Costi, Costi. 
And I was a young guy, so I used to love to stay in the back green room and just eat until the action started. And then I had to go catch people. And so I was back there eating. My dad said, Costi, get out here now. I said, what's, what's going on? He said, the greatest man of God to ever live is right out here. And he's about to head out for the night. Get out here. I want you to catch his anointing. And so I came out and followed my dad and wiped the crumbs off my mouth and tucked my suit a little tighter and came out to Oral Roberts. And there Oral Roberts laid his big hand on my head. He's a large man. And he prayed a a prayer of anointing and impartation over me that obviously, by the grace of God, fell flat. But that was, again, the pinnacle moment for my father. That Oral Roberts himself would lay his hand on me, and that was our hero of the faith. We rubbed shoulders and elbows with many other people that you know. Uh, It wasn't uncommon for us to spend time with Paul and Jan Crouch. We often would go to dinner with them at Morton Steakhouse down in Southern California and spend time with them. Celebrities would come to crusades. I remember when uh, Diane Cannon showed up and it was as though Jesus walked in the room for all of the more seasoned people. I didn't know who she was. I was a little young. Uh, Paula White would come over at Christmas. Of course, the Copelands were dear friends, and it was all a word of faith, prosperity gospel party. After serving my time with Uncle Benny, I was still full of questions. I saw many people not get healed, and there was a dissatisfaction there. I saw many times where people were turned away, And sadly so, as they wept and wondered why in the world the promise wasn't kept, when my uncle would tell you on a Friday night that God's going to heal everybody in the building, and when the clock struck 10 or 10.30 or whenever the long, drawn-out service would end, many people went home, and apparently Jesus didn't keep his promise. After leaving, I put the questions aside because I finally got the door opened for baseball and I went on my merry way. I ended up at Dallas Baptist University in Dallas, Texas, playing for a wonderful coach there named Dan Hefner, who comes from a Bible family. He's a Bible man. His dad's a a pastor. He married a gal who has a sister who married Ben Zobrist, who just won the World Series with the Cubs a couple years ago. And his dad's a pastor. And you just got a swath of people that love the word of God and are making an impact in culture, in Christian culture. And so there I was under his tutelage for a few years, and boy, did God use that in a big way. Coach Hefner, I call him the seed of sovereignty. He's the coach. I like to use the word seed in a good way now, after seed faith theology was hammered into my brain all those years. The seed that was planted in my life of God's sovereignty through Coach Hefner came one day as we were sitting, and there was a scout in the stands, and he was a Yankee scout, And we were getting ready to play, and he just looked at us all and said, Guys, relax. Don't worry about the scout. God is sovereign. And I'm sitting there a little confused. He says, God controls kings. He can control a Yankee scout. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like water in the channels of the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. I'm sitting there, blah, 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 blah. Okay, the sovereignty thing. I need to get on the good side of that so I can get drafted by the Yankee scout and get what I want. So the sovereignty thing needs to go to work for me. How do I figure this one out? And you can't. And I'll never forget that moment. I move on, of course, and I go on to graduate. But that moment never left me. Then I meet a girl. Of course, it's always the girl. 
I call my beautiful now wife, Christine, the, the seed of doubt. God used her in a big way to put the crack in the dam of my theology. She is not like me, thank God. She's a gift from the Lord. She's black and white. If the Bible says it, she says, I submit to it. So that sometimes makes marriage really easy. Sometimes it makes it really hard when she's sticking to the word and I can't get away with really anything. Her dad's a blue-collar iron worker. Her mother, a school teacher. My wife put herself through college, working at TGI Fridays for six years. And she was never one that was kind of wooed by fame. I meet her. I fall for her. I want to marry her. There's one problem. She's not spirit-filled. First question I get asked when I want to bring her to meet my parents. Cost? Is she spirit-filled? And I remember saying, don't do this. Don't do this. I got my Baptist education now. I'm still kind of charismatic, but I got you people figured out. You can't tell her that she's not spirit-filled if she doesn't speak in tongues. I remember my New Testament teacher talked about that. You're wrong. I didn't know much else, but I knew that that was too far. And I used to tell them, and there's no second baptism now. There's no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. There's no second baptism needed. One baptism. She's baptized in the body of Christ as a believer at conversion. So she's baptized in the Holy Spirit. She's got the Holy Spirit. And I'm pretty sure that your tongues aren't even interpreted anymore. And my Baptist professor said, you've got to interpret those things if you're going to even try to do that anyway. So you're wrong. Don't do this to me. Please. And so off I went to try to save the day and marry the gal. And eventually, I just became apparent, uh, well, she's got to speak in tongues. Otherwise, she doesn't really have what we have. And so uh, we tried to get her all fixed up. We took her to my Uncle Benny's crusade. It was a good Friday service in Orange County. Didn't work. Took her to a service with my father. He laid hands on her. Bless her little heart. She's got little heels on and she puts her little hands up doing all the things she thinks she has to do to get the things she thinks she's supposed to have to have. And there she goes. She tips over on her little heels and I'm thinking, man, maybe she got it. I don't know. She didn't. Just a really weird experience. And then we go to a youth conference and maybe we'll get it there. I'm speaking at the youth conference, and I'm starting to get a little bit away from the things we used to do. And so the woman pastor, I hadn't got away from everything we used to do, uh, says, Costi, for the end of the conference, I want you to pray in the Holy Ghost and fill all the kids with the Holy Ghost. Bring them all up here. And so all the kids start coming forward. And I'm thinking, oh, no, this is not good. And so I go down there, and I do the safe prayer. I put my hands on their shoulders and say, oh, Holy Spirit, fill them and use them for your glory. Help them to glorify the Lord Jesus. Oh, fill this young man. Move on. I'm just trying to pray quick. I am not filling these kids apparently right because she comes over, takes the microphone from me and says, thank you, Brother Costi. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Go. Now, listen, kids, you need to start to just move your lips and just say what comes to mind and just begin to exercise your faith. Come on, just whatever's on the tip of your tongue. There you go. There you, you got it. There. And she begins to coach these kids on tongues. And I'm sitting there in the corner, and I'm just mortified. I think, you just ruined two days of work. I gave them the gospel. I did my job. I didn't get weird. And there I looked to my left, and my wife was kind of starting to, she's like trying. She thinks, you know, I guess this is how you're supposed to do it. And we began driving home that night. And as we're going back, kind of thinking, 
something's not right. And so I asked her, you know, what, what did you think of that? She said, I tried. I tried so hard. I tried. I just want your family to accept me. I just want to do apparently what I'm supposed to do. I tried, Costi. It's just not working. I moved my lips. I said, ba 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 ba. I babbled. I tried so hard. I put my hands up. I did everything. It just doesn't happen. What is wrong with me? And it wasn't long after before the Word of God began to do its work. And the Holy Spirit began to illuminate the scriptures in accordance to his work. And I'll never forget, Bible to the rescue, my wife, uh, looking at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30, where Paul says, not all speak in tongues, do they? Not all have gifts of interpretation. Not all have gifts of healing. And on and on. And Paul clarifies. And so there was this moment in which we begin to understand, I think we're off the hook. When that domino went down, many other dominoes began to fall. Uh, Things began to align pretty quickly as we began to see, well, I think the theology that my family teaches and the way that they do things and go about things is wrong. You can imagine how that went over with my family as they begin to see her as literally the devil incarnate. They begin to prophesy over her. They spoke words of knowledge to my wife, one of them being that she was the curse, another being that she had ruined my anointing, another being that she was doomed to be barren. She was cursed and spoken about wrongly. Uh, She suffered, uh, no worse though than many of the faithful who have suffered long before, but I remember that it was time to put up a fight. And so I had a friend of mine in California ask me how I'm doing. I said, I'm doing bad. This gal ain't getting the spirit. Parents ain't having it. She's getting run through the ringer. We got to go. And he said, well, why don't you come to California? We've got this church plant thing we're doing. Come be the youth pastor and help us out with the youth and we'll figure it out. And so my wife and I packed up the cars. We drove from Canada down to California once again where my wife was from. And there we were. Joining a church that was not where it is today. It was an attractional church, a very entrepreneurial kind of mega church type plant. And so the Lord was bringing that church to a point where it would put aside all that it had done. And he was bringing us to a point where we would put aside all we had done. And in the midst of that, there would be a pastor that would disciple me in that process. And my now teaching pastor, a brother in the Lord who's uh, heading up our pulpit ministry, at that time was losing friends as well. He had said no more to the game. He had preached with all of them. He had been at the conferences with Louis Giglio. He had hung out with Stephen Furtick. He was a catalyst kind of guy. He's in books about church planting and church magazines. And he had built this youth ministry up to almost 3,000 young people by just being cool. Problem was he was the son of a very faithful pastor and God just don't let the next generation off the hook sometimes. They're going to end up following in their father's faithful footsteps and soon he begins to kind of put off all that stuff. And so our church loses a bunch of support. It loses a bunch of friends. We changed the name from being Moment Church, one of those cool hip churches that doesn't make any sense at all, to Mission Bible Church. And we join a group of churches that are part of an association where People are rooted in sound doctrine. 
And along the road, my pastor said one day, well, I'm going to have you preach. I said, okay, I'll preach. And he tosses me a commentary. He says, your text is John 5, 1 through 17. This will help you keep the train on the tracks. We'll get to it. And so the text was John 5, 1 through 17, the healing at the pool of Bethesda. As I begin to study through the text uh, and dig into the commentary by a man named John MacArthur, who I think my uncle uh, threatened with a Holy Ghost machine gun on TBN, the scales begin to fall. I kid you not. I'm studying the text, making the observations. I've got a preaching checklist and I'm making note. 38 years. There's a multitude there. This man is sick, crippled. Jesus comes and heals one. Hmm. That's different. Jesus comes and heals him and immediately the man picks up his pallet. Immediately. That's interesting too. No process, no music. No atmosphere, no anointing, no jacket. Huh. And then the Pharisees question the man, who told you you can pick up your pallet and walk? It's Sabbath day. You're working. Oh, the man who, the man who, not Jesus. The man didn't even perceive who Jesus was. Well, if he didn't perceive who Jesus was, how did he know who Jesus was? It means he didn't. So if he didn't know who Jesus was, how did he have the faith to get healed? He didn't. And there I begin to read the observations and commentary by Dr. MacArthur, and there it is clear as day, and he says it. And I never heard that type of language before. He says, and therein lies the, or there is, therein is the cruelest lie of faith healers today. And I thought, there it is. God is sovereign in healing. You can't have enough faith to get healed. You can't control a sovereign God. He didn't heal all. He healed one. It wasn't a process. He didn't get walked across the platform. It was immediately. This was a different picture of healing than I had ever seen before. And it was the true picture of Christ's healing ministry. A sovereign God healing as he wills and as he desires to work. And that absolutely wrecked my world. I remember weeping in the office. And I was so ashamed because of all the things that I had said and believed and done and the way that we had done things and the way that we had uh, stolen from people and cheated people and the way that we had taken Christ and brought reproach on his name and twisted the Bible to bankroll the family. It was the worst feeling in the world and very quickly paired with the greatest feeling that I've ever had that no feeling could ever compare with even the moment that Christine came through the double doors in the church in her beautiful white dress, even the moment where I held Titus for the first time, the moment where grace came and that was my own daughter, my own flesh and blood, the greatest moment I've ever experienced, the moment that I knew God's grace was sufficient for me. Two days later, I preached the sermon, and I don't remember much. I think I yelled a lot. I was mad, and I needed help. And so my pastor started to give me books and started to look at more of this MacArthur guy, and there were some peculiar things that I wasn't sure I was okay with. I mean, I was done with the whole charismatic chaos, but, I mean, this guy didn't believe in miracles, right? So... We don't want to deal too much with him besides the commentary. 
and we're in Lifeway one day, and my wife says, I want this study Bible. I said, no. No way. She says, I want this pink one. And the pink study Bible started a little marriage spat right in the aisle way at Lifeway there in Tustin, California. And I said, no. It's a nice theologian, nice guy. I think he's the guy from the commentaries, kind of putting all the pieces together. I'm like, that's the guy, though. He doesn't believe in healing. He doesn't believe in miracles. He's a little stuffy. We're not putting that in the house. You're going to ruin my children. They're going to think God does nothing. And she says, in her little five foot two way, strong as an ox, but so small. How, does, how do they do that? And she says, I have my 40% off coupon and I'm not leaving without this study Bible. <laughs> I remember the wisdom of older men before I got married. They said the two words you're going to come to know, son. Yes, dear. I said, yes, dear. Well, two weeks later, guess who was reading the pink John MacArthur study Bible every morning during quiet time? This guy. And I was hooked. And I suddenly realized there's a whole world out there of faithful Bible people, people of the word, people of the way they would have called Christians in the early church that loved the word and would know the word. And there were pastors that didn't twist the word and you could depend on them to be faithful, ultimately depending on Christ as all. But he had given under shepherds who were doing a good job. And those men were the men that you would listen to. And so I was stripped of my title at the church. I went from Pastor Costi to Pastor in Training. It was a bit like being a pledge at a fraternity. I was like Pledge Hin. You got no respect. You're not on the back of the bulletin anymore. Your wife's embarrassed. You got to go to seminary. You thought you were something you're not. But it really wasn't embarrassing at all. I wore it like a badge of honor. It was the greatest privilege ever. To go from being something you thought you were to something you really were, go to in training. And I told my pastor, I'm out of here. I'm going to the master's seminary. I'm leaving everything behind. He said, slow, slow down, slow down. If everybody left and went to MacArthur's seminary, the pastors would have no associates and no staff. So just slow down and relax. We'll get you into seminary. And he helped me navigate that first year really well. Uh, But I sent an email over to Grace to you one day to say thank you. I was overwhelmed with gratitude. I ended up connecting with one of the staff members there. I told them the story about the Pink MacArthur Study Bible. Uh, They sent me one. I got on their mailing list, which, by the way, if you're not on it, they give away a lot of free books. Uh, And I got a MacArthur Study Bible. I also was sent something else called Strange Fire. I thought, that's interesting. And so I popped it in one night, and I stayed up all night. And it was Conrad Mbawe yelling, stop sending your missionaries. They're polluting the people. Leave your prosperity gospel in America. And it was Johnny Erickson Tata singing the hymns, explaining a true and deeper healing that happens when the healing doesn't come. And that one made me weep. And then there was this guy with a southern draw. And I couldn't figure out why he was sitting down. Everybody else stood up except Johnny. I didn't know he had cerebral palsy and he just sat. He talked slow and steady and he brought it. And he would put examples up of things that I had heard and maybe even some quotes that I had regurgitated over the years before I was saved. And he began to systematically pick apart the lies of Satan through false teachers and 
counteract it with the word of God. And I thought, I want to be that guy. That's a preacher. That's a man of God right there. And I remember that I used the DVD, I used YouTube, and I began to search the scriptures and, of course, be greatly blessed by seminary training and by faithful pastors and others. But if it was not for the evangelism of faithful preachers and teachers and the discipleship of my local church, I would have not been brought along the way I was. And so some time later, I decided, actually this past year, almost five years later, a little late, but at least I said thanks. I chose to call Justin. And I was on the way home from the office one day, and I remembered, because I was watching something on YouTube, and I thought, you know, I ought to call this guy. I probably think I'm a little crazy. I'm a hen. But I'll tell him. I'm not that hen. And so I called Justin and let him know the impact his ministry had had on my life. And uh, he called me back. We became friends. And that was literally just this last January, December, January, right? And I am thankful to the Lord for his faithful servants. Uh, going back to John 10, 10, I've come to realize that the abundant life is not a life of temporal wealth. It's not a life full of your pleasure, a life all about you. It is a sacrificial thing. The abundant life costs Christ much, and it costs you much. Christ gave all. That is costly. So you and I could have eternal life. The abundant life is eternal. Very much so. It is an eternal perspective. It is a hope in heaven. It is not of this world. It is not your best life now. It is your best life to come, and it is in glory with Jesus Christ. The ultimate eternal treasure won't even be the mansions, it won't even be the crowns, it won't even be the healing, it won't even be your wheelchair left at the gate, it won't even be no more tears. It'll be a heaven full of the glory of God and the presence of Christ Jesus himself. And he is there. I don't want my best life now. I want Christ in eternity. And that's what Christians need to continue to say and be faithful to live because there are so many more people just like me. Sheep that will soon come to know the shepherd's voice. And you need to be faithful and I need to be faithful because there is much work left to be done. I'll ask you to do one thing as I close us in prayer and that is to not just let this be a story of oohs and ahs or wondering uh, you know, about the details. I'll get to that in the Q&A tomorrow and you can ask me anything you want. But ultimately, let this be a reminder that it really isn't about the hen thing really doesn't matter if I'm Costi Hinn. I could be Costi Smith. Your conversion, my conversion, and the conversion of those who will still come to know the king is what matters. And so be faithful, 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 day in and day out. And eventually, ministry like mine will be obsolete. I can serve in the local church, and there'll be plenty more people to share their testimony because of faithful evangelists like you. So let's do our job and do the work. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your everlasting word. We thank you, Jesus, for the abundant life you give, the eternity that awaits us, that every dollar now could, couldn't even come close to comparing. The riches of this world can't compare at all to you. The glories that this world could try to offer cannot touch the glories that await in heaven. What false imposters promise people now 
will become irrelevant as you show people the riches of eternity one day. Please use us as your hands and feet. Let the feet of your people be called blessed because they bring the good news. Use those here to bring faith and faith that comes by hearing the word of God. Put your word in their hearts, your word on their lips, and let them never forget that every moment is an opportunity to spread your truth. We are your people committed to your service, and I pray that you would use us all for your glory. In your name, King Jesus, amen. 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 Thank you.